fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT. Thriller. Mystery. I'm Al Warren, and uh, we're in the first week of 24 for the show. And uh, co-hosting today, Mr. Gavin Stone. Hello. How are you? I'm well. I'm delicious. They say that's what they, <laughs> they tell me. I decide. You know, I haven't tasted myself, so I don't know. Oh, oh that's well. gross. You're gross. So early. So <laughs> early. Just started off. Yeah. Yeah. You always start that nasty stuff like that. So New, New Year's. What was going on with you? What did you do for Christmas, New Year's? Did you go out and uh, spy on people, or? No, no. I was well behaved. Uh, family night at home. Oh, that's it. I know. Yeah, boring this year, huh? I thought you were like wild spy, and you did all these things. I thought you'd be like, you know, in Russia somewhere. A few, a few years ago, maybe, unfortunately, now, no, a full-time dad and, and kind of, you know, uh, there's uh, parts of the body that don't work as good as they used to, so I'm, uh, I'm not spending as much time in the field. Well, and that'll be another show. We're going to talk about <laughs> Gavin's body parts that don't work. <laughs> <laughs> maybe the brain. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, you know, that's a whole episode in itself. Well, today we are, we, um, let's see, we've got a guest that is in the same sort of field or was in the same field as you were so it's kind of a relation there and i know that his book that came out uh let's see september 25th in 23 is called dead hand so let's bring on the guest james uh, stay school thank you very much for being here well good evening i guess it will be um it's great to be here and great to be uh in the first week of 2024 the first presentation of 2024 so thanks for uh, having me on no, it's a pleasure. Now, I understand that you've got quite a good history with bacon, so tell us about bacon. I was going to say that's all made up, but it's not. Um, I have, <laughs> my, my father was actually a stockyard man, a cattle buyer. He brought home a lot of bacon, uh, and I can say that truthfully because we lived in Omaha, and that was the biggest stockyard in the world, and he dealt heavily in in meat, meat futures, and um, we, we had direct access to all the big packing plants, so uh, our freezer was always full because Dad brought home the bacon, so I enjoy bacon. Yeah, the smell of bacon. You know, I grow it, but I, don't, I can't find the seeds, so... <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that terrible? What the yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, um, so you've got quite the history in, um, I guess, military and intelligence, right? Central Intelligence Agency, U.S. Armed Special Forces and stuff like that. I always wonder this, like, when, so when you were a kid, is that sort of where you wanted to go as a kid? Were you totally inspired by the military and, and CIA and you wanted to go that way? Well, my my father was military in World War Two and uh, during Korea, and then spent most of the rest of his career in um, 
the Army Reserves while, while he was doing his civilian work. Um, but uh, I wanted to get out of Dodge. Uh, although we were living in Omaha, I wanted to get out of Dodge. And that meant something that was a little bit more adventurous. So I went from uh, wanting to be a forest ranger to marine archaeologist, uh, one-time biology, um, and then my dad went off on one of his Army Reserve camps and brought home a brochure that explained all about the Green Berets, the U.S. Army Special Forces. And that sort of did it for me, and um, this was even before the John Wayne film. Um, so I uh, I got committed fairly early on, and I went to I went to the university, uh, spent a year there, and then decided ah, this isn't quite what I, what I wanted to do. So I enlisted. Was it was it did it turn out how you thought it would be? Like would life with that with the agencies and stuff was it all like John Wayne? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> And it's not like James Bond either. Uh, in fact, it's uh, it's more like a combination of um, uh, Phil Silver and uh, yes, yeah, see, let's see, who would know? Um, it would be our man in uh, our man in Havana, uh, the uh, Graham Greene book. Um, it's a lot of not what you expect, and you know there are moments of excitement, but. Mm-hmm. Very brief. A, a lot of it is just interminable boredom. Yeah, and I'm old enough to remember Phil Silvers. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think the public gets wrong about the kind of work you did in both agencies, both the force and CIA? What do you think the public in general is, is getting wrong about agency workers? Well, I, I don't think it's just the agency. I think it's the military, too. The, uh, if I start with Special Forces, uh, the U.S. Army as a whole, what we used to call the Green Army, as opposed to us, which were sort of in the shadows, um, did not like us because we tended to be kind of freeform and do the things that we wanted to do, not uh, not the way the Army really wanted to. If you wanted a, a unit to be looking good on the drill field, you did not call special forces. Uh, they couldn't keep in step. Uh, they couldn't follow orders. Uh, yeah. Anyway, and it's kind of the same way with the CIA. Um, actually, the civilian world, I think, believes that what they see on the screen is what really happens in the world. And if you talk to most CIA officers and ask them if they've ever fired a gun, uh, other than on the, on the range, they'll tell you no. Uh, but if you watch all the TV programs, damn, um, all these guys are expert shots and can run and shoot people in the head at 300 meters with a with a pistol that usually can't hit anything beyond 25. So yeah, there are a lot of misconceptions out there. Oh, geez, you mean it's not like Queen Latifah and the Equalizer? She walks in the room and five minutes later, all ten guys are dead, and she walks out without a scratch. Well, she might be able to do that, but I can. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us, what did you think of British intelligence? <laughs> Are you speaking about the nation, or are you talking about uh, the SIS and MI5? Uh, MI5, what do you think of that? Actually, I, did, I didn't deal a whole lot with MI5. I did with the other folks. And 
they're just as bad. I mean, they're just as good as we are. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah uh, we we have our foibles. Uh, you know, we I think they were better in the restaurants uh, because they knew what wine to order, and we're not so good at that. But um, out in the field, they're good and they're bad, uh, and so are we. <laughs> That's it. We, we can screw up just as good as you. We just do it with an accent. Yeah, and Gavin, I really appreciate that. You know that that sense of competition. Yeah, we can we can that word I'm not supposed to say. We can screw that up just as well as you can. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, you you're better at ordering the bacon. That's all. <laughs> they can I, do no bacon. I do know bacon. I do know bacon. And and pork belly. Yeah. What got you into writing about that sort of situation? Because I see that your newest book coming out this year and some of your previous ones here it's a lot about uh the situation in the world and and it, of course there's a lot of you know secret intelligence and stuff that's used in this area what made you go into writing this sort of fiction well i've um oh, it's it was kind of a i have to say it was kind of a commingling of interests um i started reading um military history and then spy history, spy fiction, military fiction, not so much, but uh, at a very young age. And it was also interested in writing. Um, I, I wouldn't say I wanted to be like John Le Carre or, or uh, any of those folks, but I did have an interest in writing, and I did want to tell a story. So I, I enjoy telling stories. I'm not so good. Talking, you know, I couldn't get up on the stage and tell a story for the life of me. My brother can, but I So while I was in the Army, actually, I started writing down some notes, some short stories. Um, and when it came for me to start my third career, actually, yeah, that's my third career, I started doing some conflict archaeology, which is basically going out looking at war and how it affects the world uh, old conflicts, and I was writing a history of uh, Germany in Africa during World War One, and there were a lot of side stories that didn't come into my book, so I was interested in telling them as fiction, because then you can make up the, um, the personal stories of the people that are involved in it. Um, and one thing led to another. Uh, I also had a bad experience with the Pentagon. Anytime I write something, I have to get it cleared by the Pentagon and the CIA. Um, that's, that's the agreement you sign when you sign on. Um, so it's easier to tell those stories than fiction. And in some cases, it's a bit more fun. Um, and then I can make stuff up. Um, my current one, Dead Hand, projects things out into the future. Actually, we're almost on top of it now. It was, it's, um, it's actually supposed to be happening in 2024, which if I, if I check my calendar, I think we're there right now. Um, but, um, yeah. Anyway, so I went from military history writing to fiction, and I'm sort of going back and forth. How do you choose the themes? Like, what made you choose? Like, in the, in the latest book, Dead Hand, We've got Russia winning the war over Ukraine and eyeing the Baltics. So what made you choose that particular area and subject? I would say it's because I'm prescient, but uh, no. Uh, I think it's because I see a story, um, and I want to 
I want to try to put it down on paper and tell people about it. Um, dead hand is all about what could happen and the way I see it and it's a possibility. So I try to make it more interesting by integrating uh, my knowledge about special operations and the intelligence world and, and you're off and running right there. And, and your main, you know, your character here is Joshua Devlin. Um, who is Joshua Devlin? How did you come up with him? Well, Joshua Devlin is actually, that's not his, that's not the name he was brought up with. Uh, he, he exists in some of my previous books, but because of a series of unfortunate events, uh, he is now in what the agency calls their witness protection program. He's had to change his name, um, but he's one of the few agents they have that does not speak Pashto or Arabic, but speaks a language that can be useful in Europe. Uh, so he gets called in because this is an Eastern European thing. He's an older guy, and he is linked up with another CIA officer who is also an older guy. Both of them have been called back for service because the uh, man that Joshua is uh, linked up with has a long relationship with a Russian who is providing the CIA with information. And it goes downhill from there. So you, you speak French and German yourself. Do you speak any Russian also? No, I do not. Um, I was fortunate enough to be brought up in a family where my mom was Greek and my father was Czech, and we spoke English. <laughs> uh, so the languages I learned were learned later on in life. Oh, wow. I, I'm, I'm linked friends with you on Facebook. We've got a lot of, you know, because we're in a similar background, a lot of linked, um, or, or, you know, familiar connections um, and I noticed the other day I went on to have a look at your profile and, and I spotted something that said tinkerer and breaker of fine mechanicals um, where you were a, a member of Orca the Orlando Club America uh, and that really uh, got my attention so can you tell us a little bit about that cars are also an interest uh, to me and that may or may not come from Ian Fleming and his signing James Bond of Bentley uh, but um, Certainly it came from the movies, but uh, I enjoy uh, British engineering, um, not necessarily because it's good, it is, but it's also challenging. Uh, my brother, when I was younger, my oldest brother had a Jaguar XKE uh, in uh, the 60s. He, he, had a, he had a 60s and E type, and one of the most... Interesting moments in my life was the day that I told him I was visiting him. I said, we need milk, and he threw me the keys with a Jag. I had never driven a Jag before. I barely knew how to drive a four-speed, and he threw the keys to me and said, well, go get it. So uh, here I'm driving this thing with a nose that's like 25 feet long, and that that was my introduction to British cars. So uh, since then, I've, I've wanted... Um, a, an old Bentley, but they're too expensive. But um, I did buy a new Bentley, a newer Bentley, a 1950, 1949 actually, and rebuilt it to be a special. And I am currently working on another British car. You may have heard of it. It's kind of old. It's a 1919 uh, Silver Ghost. Oh, very nice. Yeah, the Rolls Royce Silver Ghost. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's uh, that's quite a challenge. <laughs> oh, I'll bet. Yeah, the uh, the Rolls Royce they've got their own specific tools. You can't you can't just use a standard Snap-on toolkit. They've got very uh, like customized tools to 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 yeah. Uh, what what a what an engineering challenge for you. Uh, well, yeah, because the Rolls Royce engineers are never convent, con, uh, content to have something built that's simple. Uh, they'd rather make it complicated so that it will last a hundred years, but be the most frustrating piece of equipment that you've ever took, taken apart in your life. <laughs> oh, without doubt. Is, is Joshua Devlin your your protagonist? Is is he a version of yourself? How much of, of yourself is reflected in him? The characters in the book are versions of people I know, and some of them are composites. And Joshua has a bit, I, yeah, I'll give you that. He has a bit of me. Obviously, I'm thinking for him. Um, but uh, there's bits and pieces of other people in him, too. Um, people I've worked with, people I've liked, people I've disliked, they all find their way into my book. And, and so how do, you, how do you tackle writing an action scene? Is that from experience, or something you've seen, or is it just from John Wayne, or like, what, how do you, how do you, how do you keep the suspense in the, in such a part, you know? Alan, I wish I had the answer to that. Uh, every time I go into an action scene, I agonize over it, and I will go back and I will read, reread action scenes from everybody, from Robert Moss and. Joseph Cannon, um, Charles McCary, even Mick Heron. I mean, I look at these things and I say, well, that's an interesting way to handle it. Um, but uh, I end up just putting myself in the position of the two people or three people that might be involved in an action scene and how it would look to them from their point of view and how it would look from the opposition point of view and just try to build it that way. Um, I remember when when I was younger, um, when I first started playing sports, I was never really very good at it. Um, I was too light. I was not heavy enough to play football, and I was not good enough or tall enough to play basketball. But I remember when I first started playing, the plays, when they would come off, would be so fast and so complicated for my mind to follow that that. It was just something that I couldn't envision writing about later or trying to come up with saying everything that, that happened. But as I got older and as I got more experienced, and this, this was true in the military also, the more you practice, the more you do things, the time actually slows down when you're, when you're executing a specific maneuver or a specific operation. And I learned to be able to dissect that and see it again and sort of recount it on paper. And it, it just, it's, a lot of it's my experience uh, in those scenes and, and being able to look at it from different points of view. You should be like Gavin, just get out there and recreate it. You just get out there and do it and then you... <laughs> well, I've done a few of those too. Uh, no. I've, I've tested my theories. Um, there's one scene in the book where a guy has to get off seven rounds, I believe it's seven rounds in less than ten seconds, but he's got three targets to shoot in three different directions. So I, re I redid that. I, I carried it out just as even as possible. With the same weapon, the same magazines, same distances, and once I was convinced that I could do it, then I could put it in my book.
Well, I like that. And, and violence, do you think about how you display violence in the book, or are you just kind of, are you free to put whatever, or do you kind of hold back some, or how do you, how do you deal with the violence? There's two, there's two things I hold back. Um, there's two things I hold back on. Um, one is violence, um, because I see no reason for you know, extremely explicit descriptions of everything that happens, nor do I think it's needed in the book. Um, and the other one is sex scenes, and that's because I don't know how to write them. Yeah, <laughs> pick up some Harlequin romance there, and <laughs> uh, yeah, that's exactly what I'm afraid of. Yeah, that's one area where experience does nothing for you because if you try to write it, it uh, somebody is going to complain. I, I try to some extent, but it, it never comes off as being as fluid and well executed on the paper as it should be. There are some people that can do it. Uh, and I'm not talking about Arlington romances. I'm talking about uh, some other authors, but um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not there yet. No, yeah, well, you don't have to be. And and so, how do you deal with the bad guys? So you got some evil, obviously, in a book, and especially the these types of fiction. So you got an evil character or characters, and and someone with bad intention and all that. How do you get into the head to write such bad people or awful people? How 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 do you get that way? I think a lot of people have said that even bad people can be good people at sometimes uh, at, at moments in their life. Um, again, it's a point of view. You look at them and say, okay, what is this person trying to accomplish and why? And then I, I always enjoy throwing in little tidbits to show them that they are human, you know, that they have a personality, not just this mad dog kind of person, mad dog, mad woman, mad whatever. Um, everybody has quirks, and I think quirks are kind of an interesting way to show a person's personality. So I, I try to plug those in for people. Now, there are a few guys that I really don't like, and I just try to kill them off as quickly as possible, and I, I don't give them much air time at all. <laughs> Well, and with the evil people or the bad people, I guess you got to kind of show how they think that way or why they think that way. Kind of give more of a an idea so people can kind of understand what they're going for in a way. And, and yeah, I, I agree. And some people identify with uh, Blofeld and his fluffy white cat. So I mean, you don't want to hurt the cat. Uh, you might want to hurt Blofeld, but definitely not the cat. Yeah, don't don't touch the pussy. <laughs> well, yeah, what was that? I didn't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and so that's it. so when you say you kill off the bad ones or some of the people you don't like as much as possible, do you ever kill off people that you know in real life? I mean, in your books, it's your people that you've met <laughs> that have inspired. Yeah, here's the confession. You no, know, people you've met uh, that have inspired characters in in one of your books. But you've killed them all. Is that is that ever you ever come across that? Um, yes. Um, there are, there have been a couple, and I must say that my current uh, the book I'm currently working on is going to have a few more. Um, I'm taking a couple of cues from Hemingway. I think that sometimes it's necessary to kill people off that you like uh, just to make the story go forward. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm doing that. And some of them I knew pretty well, and, and I really didn't like them, so it's okay. 
Uh, how about some names and, and phone numbers? We'll get them yeah. on, the, on the line and talk to them. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I think they may be able to figure out who they are when they read the book. <laughs> oh, there you go. See. Of course, yeah. if they see my name on it, they probably won't. So anyway. <laughs> yeah, that's just wrong. So when you set out to do one of these stories, like uh, in the fiction part for sure, do, do you ever have kind of a, a concept, like some sort of a subtext, a meaning, something you hope people take away from the book besides the action and, and all the other stuff going on in the book? I wouldn't say it's a, a big global theme. I'd rather like to put in personal motivations. Um, in that regard, I'm tending towards Le Carre and, and Graham Greene um, that um, some of the things that I have seen in life uh, kind of have uh, made an impression on me and I like to have my characters kind of come upon that same impression in their own life and see how it affects them. What do you, what do you like writing better? Is it the nonfiction or the fiction? Fiction, fiction is more fun but I think a well-written non-fiction book is more rewarding. Um, and I've got, right now, four non-fiction. I'm working on a fifth one that should be coming out this summer. And when I see those, I think, I like that a lot because there, I said, I made a contribution. You know, the storytelling is great. But when it comes time to remember the things that have happened uh, in the past, uh, military history or any kind of political history, uh, having an authentic history is very important. And so to be able to write one of those and make it readable, um, a good narrative history, uh, for me, means a great deal to me. So how do you think each book um, changes you? Like each time you complete a book and get it in and done and it gets launched? Um, do you think it changes you as a person or even as a writer? Definitely as a writer, because my, my writing is evolving. Um, I started out with a lot of descriptions of persons, places, and things, and uh, it has evolved to less descriptions and more showing, which is one of the things you're supposed to do in a novel, is to tell and not to show, um, or show and not to tell, whichever. Um, to, to actually let people try to get into the novel. And I'm getting better into that so that people can see what I'm writing and they don't have to interpret it in, the, in their own minds. Um, I'm not sure it changes me so much other than the fact that my wife thinks I'm tied to the computer and spending too much time writing words. Um, so uh, at, at this point, it's, um, it's an outlet for me, and it lets me tell stories that... Um, some of them in my non, my fiction books are things that um, I probably could not say as uh, nonfiction. Uh, so it allows me to tell those stories in a slightly altered fashion that I would like to tell, and that that for me is a, is an outlet that I really enjoy. Yeah. Did you always know you were going to be a writer? Like when you were young, did you think? Um you'd be a writer and you were kind of writing a lot back then, or it, it, did it come along late for you? It, it came along late. I mean, I was, like I said, I had been toying with writing before, but I've never, never completed anything. And uh, it was only, only after I'd written two nonfiction books uh, that I got the idea uh, 
to write fiction. Uh, and again, uh, that was primarily because of my run-in with the Pentagon. You know, it was, when, when the Pentagon takes 16 months to clear a book, which I can read in, in a week, um, it's, it's kind of frustrating and annoying. And fiction is a nice way to tell that story and, and to avoid uh, the frustration of dealing with the government. Was there much that you uh, had to remove from the pre-publication review, or, or was it was it plain, pretty plain sailing? Uh, well, so not not a great deal. A little bit. Um, some people had complaints. Um, it, the problem is, is the Pentagon gets it, and then they say, "Well, you talk about this there, so we have to send it to somebody." And, and you talk about this here, and we have to send it to somebody else. So it's a very long and complicated process. Whereas if you write fiction, you can say, okay, this is fiction, nothing in here is true, and the government can say, oh, it's fiction, uh, therefore we don't care. <laughs> and they still look <laughs> at it, but it takes, instead of a year, it takes them a month. So, uh, yeah. it's, it's much more lucrative. Oh, definitely, yeah. This is how I bring some of my friends in and how, how, how I write some of the stories that they probably would not want me to write if it was a true story, but if it's a fiction story, it's not so bad. So what gave you the courage to actually go ahead and try and publish a book? If I go back to the first book I wrote, um, I was in southern Africa, and I was trying to research what had happened uh, during World War One in the country I was at. I was in Namibia. And for the life of me, I couldn't find much information. I could find the information about what the Germans had done, uh, their own history. And I had found a history of what the, the British and the South Africans had done. But there wasn't a compilation that you know, told the story from both sides at the same time in the same book. And so I said, well, let's, uh, let's try to put together something and see where it goes. And then I was extremely fortunate. I queried a guy in the UK, a small press company, a small publisher, and they came back to my surprise very quickly and said, yeah, we'll take it on. Um, and then my next book, they said, which was the book that was about special forces in Berlin, they said, well, that's a bit beyond us, but I know somebody who might be interested. Uh, and they took it. So I've been extremely fortunate in, in the fact that I've been picked up by publishers. I know a lot of people will go for years and work with agents and you know, get rejected by all kinds of people. But like I said, I, I've been very lucky in the company that I was working with for a long time. I'm still working with a, a nonfiction. Basically, says if you write it and it makes sense, we'll publish it. So um, I try to find good stories, stories that interest me. If if it doesn't interest me or if I don't know enough about it, I can't write it. Uh, I just have a mental block. But I can write about stories that interest me. You know, it's a very judgmental world out there. So I always kind of you know, especially nowadays with you know the internet and you know all the social media and. Amazon and stuff, so people can be very judgmental, mean and and good at the same time. And Absolutely. I was just wondering, yeah. So, so to take that's why I say take courage, because you're actually, in a way, you're exposing some of who you are into these books, and you put it out there, and then someone can say, oh, you know, this guy's awful and stuff. Are, are do you do you pay attention to any of that, any of the noise from the internet or the Amazon or reviews or any of that? Uh, that's a very good question because. 
I, I am still learning. Uh, my wife, my office is upstairs, and my wife will be downstairs. Now come storming down the stairways, and she, she can tell from the look on my face when I've got a bad review or something. And she she has worked with me well. Um, you just have to learn to live with it. Uh, some people have a motive for what they write, uh, either good or bad, and you just have to live with that. Um, you know, if you put your stuff out on the street, you know, some people are going to say it's good, and some people are going to say bad. It, does, it doesn't matter. Um, so I, I'm learning to live with it, but it's it's been a journey, I, I tell you. Um, what I didn't know about book publishing was it's actually... The easiest part is writing the book. No matter how hard it is, it's the easiest part. Because then you have to go for the publishing. Uh, you have to go, for, in some people's case, you have to go for the pre-publication clearance from the government. Uh, I think it's the same way for the people that work for some of the organizations in the UK. Um, so that's that's a little bit more difficult, going through the editing process and everything else. Then you come up to the fact the point where you're actually publishing the book, and publishers do not do a great deal of promotion anymore, uh, unless you're with one of the big fives. Um, so if you publish a book, you have to be prepared to go on the social media and talk about it, talk about yourself, talk about your motivations and all the questions that you've been asking, and you try to do the best you can to promote not only your book, but your reason for writing it and what the book is about. Um, and you have to expect that out of every ten people that, that are exposed to the book, two of them are going to care, maybe more. Uh, and at least probably 20% are going to finish it and say, I've read better. So uh, you just have to deal with that. Yeah. I always just hunt them down and, and take them out. <laughs> well, that is that is an option, but uh, you know, I, yeah, I, I don't. I'd rather they buy it and say it was bad than, than not buy it and not hear from them. So. Well, you know, I think I think a lot of it is noise. You know, it's just out there. If you focus on it too much, it takes you away from your writing and what's really important in your life. I mean, it's kind of a one of those things, you know, and and a lot of I. I you know, and a lot of the reviews, too, a lot of people that say things, they say it. It's how their day is or how they perceive something and how they feel when they're reading the book. Maybe they're in a bad mood or a bad way, and so they sort of give it a bad review. So you kind of got to just say, I, I ignore all of mine. You know, what I really, what I really dislike is with, uh, on Amazon or other places, when they put up one star and then they don't say a word. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, you didn't like it. Why didn't you like it? You know, at least, you know, give me a chance to uh, to work on it and improve. You know, find a way around it. You know, maybe I can write something you would like, or maybe I can direct you to somebody that you might like better. Who knows? But uh, don't don't write a review and don't put anything. <laughs> yeah, just ignore that. You'll never win on that because you, yeah, you see, then you I start don't. focusing on that. You know, it's just people like Gavin. <laughs> you try and take out the competition so it gives everyone a one star. That's it, yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, as soon as we're done here, I'm going to go on uh, Goodreads and start putting up stuff about all Gavin's books. Uh, I'll remind yeah, yeah, anything well, I put up. Yeah. Why not? One star. <laughs> Fake. One star. <laughs> so, 
He sounds like he's from Alabama, not the UK. Yeah, no, <laughs> nobody believes me. So, so um, how, how did you get on with? Because I mean, we both worked in the industry, and we both know what it's like to do something like a you know three, four, five hour SDR, um, and 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 kind of how for us that can be so laborious and so time consuming and sometimes very boring. Um, so, so to put something like that into into a spy novel, how are you coping? And it doesn't have to be an SDR; it can be any of the trade craft. How are you, how are you coping with kind of keeping that kind of uh, the, the the reader's attention and condensing that? That's uh, that's an interesting question too, Gavin. That's one I've struggled with. Not necessarily struggled with, but uh, I've found different ways to handle it. And um, if you read one of my early books, I'm kind of laborious uh, about describing uh, an SDR or something like that. No, I will take you through almost, not, not street by street, but, but fairly long. And I've gotten, I've gotten, I've changed my way with that, and, and I've come up with ways to describe highlights of, of a surveillance run and compact them. So when a 12-hour surveillance run might come down to one page or two pages in the book, um, and I've just I've just had to look for different ways to describe it. It will will make people feel like they've been on a 12-hour run, and hopefully they won't be as tired and pissed off, but uh, they will understand <laughs> what's involved and, and realize. Because actually, you know, when I when I've done SDRs and I've done them in the States, training, and everywhere else. Um, you know, when you're doing it in the States, it's a chore. Because, okay, you know, you got somebody watching you and evaluating you, and you're out there looking for them. But when you do it for real, overseas, even in the States, if you're doing it for real, um, it takes on a whole different complexity and a whole different vibe. Um, then you're saying, it's almost like a game at that point. And, uh, not not a game in something that you're just playing at, but a game where you have to win. Um, yeah. You, you have to know when to commit and when to not commit, when to go ahead or when to abort. And if you can put those things down on paper, then I think the essence of what you experience is there. And that's, that's what I try to achieve. It's a lot of the stuff you've learned in, let's say, CIA, uh, still with you today, like, you know, the awareness of your surroundings and what's around. Do you still kind of do the same sort of behaviors you did when you were working for the agency? My favorite phrase, Alan, is just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. <laughs> <laughs> and, and in today's world, I mean, when I travel overseas, um, if I'm going to what we euphemistically used to call third world countries, um, then, yeah, all that stuff comes into play. Uh, the kind of things you wear, the kind of things you take with you, how you act on the street. Um, and then when I go downtown here, even even in Washington, D.C., it, it, it's the same thing. If you've got your face buried in a telephone or an iPad or whatever, you don't know what's going on around you. Uh, so the things that I've learned over the years uh, apply in civilian life just, just as equally as they do when you're on the job. Well, now let's talk about uh, websites, social media, and all that. Where can readers find James? 
I was just going to say on the Internet, but that would be a little too <laughs> flippant. But, uh, uh, if you Google my name, um, I'm on... Oh, I do have a website. It's not a real good one. Uh, it's basically just a, a WordPress um, website. Uh, it does have some of my older articles, some of my military history, and it describes my novels. I'm up on Facebook. I'm on Instagram, and I'm on that new thing called X, which is the old thing called Twitter. This is the great thing. If, you, if you're a member of the Big Five, you probably have somebody at one of those big publishing houses that is uh, pretending to be you uh, and putting out stuff on all these organizations, uh, on all these websites or social media things. But if, you, if you're an independent author, like many, many are nowadays, you have to do all this stuff yourself, uh, so you do the best you can. So I, I put up, um, I put up updates about my books on on social media, like I said, Facebook and X um, and uh, Instagram. Um, so the best way to look for me is use my name and stuff it in Google or whatever search engine you're using, and you'll come up with something. Well, of course, we'll have all that up on our website so people can find you easily. You know? Oh, so I just went through all that to explain it. Now you tell me that? <laughs> yeah, of course. You see, that's what I do. That's oh, what, okay. You know, yeah. That's, all that's right. That's what I do. Sorry. Here, you know? No problem. That's my job. You see, that's what <laughs> I, I do my job. And use use the name Gavin Stone. That would be a great spy name. <laughs> Sounds rough. Yeah, you know, that's a good idea, Gavin. Because there's a guy in one of my books whose name actually was Gavin. Um, does he get I killed? Had, I, yeah, changed he... His, I changed his name so he wouldn't get mad at me, but now that you've <laughs> offered up yours, I'm, I'm going to go for it. Yeah, and he, you probably killed him off. So. There you go. Yeah, so there you go. You, you, later tonight you can kill me. How about that? No, yeah. I, no, I, I think he ended up looking for a $5 bill in, in an outhouse. We told him the wallet got dropped in, and he went went looking for it and he never came back uh, yeah oh boy you got him down you already got the character that's it yeah <laughs> I'll, I'll, come up, I'll come up with a better demise for you gavin oh yeah. thank you thank you <laughs> well we appreciate you being on the show there you know and uh, of course your latest book is called dead hand and uh, our guest has been the author of that book and several others well, you know like i said go to our website james stay school thank you for being here Thank you very much, Ellen and Gavin, and we'll see you down the road. I think we ought to tip a, a scotch or something together somewhere. Sounds good to me. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This is the production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.